Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversation at 11,000 feet. With your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome to the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your adventures, books, and conversations, your ABCs from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is producer Doug. Hello. Hey, Doug. Hi, Doug. Hey there. Welcome to another episode. Yeah, so welcome, Stacey. Uh, it's a beautiful summer day here in the Eastern yes. Sierra. It's gorgeous outside. We've and had a bunch of them. I know. Isn't it great? So nice. It just draws you outside to go out, get into the sagebrush, head uphill, head towards water, get your boots dirty and your fingers wet, your hands wet. Absolutely. Muddy. Um, and I think you had a kind of a, an adventure that got your hands wet recently. We, we tried. What? We, we made a good effort. So something my family loves to do every summer in the Eastern Sierras, go crawdadding, catch crawdags or crayfish. Some people call them different things. Crawdadding. They're little crustaceans and they're so yummy to cook up in a jambalaya or throw them with a little fish toss or whatever you want to do. But we have a little (laughs) spot that we go to kind of by Rush Creek. That's all I'm going to say because it's a secret spot. (laughs) Our listeners will have to Google Rush Creek. You'll have to Google it. And we'll we'll put a link to Rush Creek in in the show notes for everybody to check Which out. Which Rush Creek though? The Rush Creek where the crawdads are, or the Rush Creek where you're trying to send everyone else? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you. Just have to figure that out on your own. But crawdading is is such a, a fun. It's a very unique and different activity. And for our listeners, so it's very interesting to note that the crawdads or the crayfish are actually the variety of. Red swamp crayfish. Oh, that sounds delicious. And they are. I promise <laughs> you. I know you doubt, but it's true. And they were actually imported here from Louisiana. They were imported. Imported. Yes. Brought here from Louisiana. And the craziest thing is that I was in Louisiana about 15 years ago mm-hmm. and in a restaurant eating crayfish or crawdads, whatever you want to call them. And the waiter was telling, asked us where we were from. Mm-hmm. So we were from California, and they were telling us that now they import crawdads from California back to Louisiana because we have so many here. <laughs> so I, the listeners, I, I'm just going to give a caveat right now. Anyone who knows me already is probably already chuckling because. I don't eat bugs. I don't eat lobster. I don't eat crawdads. I don't eat, you know, anything with six legs and an exoskeleton. You're missing out. Uh, apparently I am. It is. It, they're really good. They're, it, you have to work for this. This is not food that you just unwrap like a burger and put in your mouth. You have to break the heads off. You have to dig <laughs> the meat out. It's an active sport. So tell us about what it's like to go crawdadding. So the way that we do it, we take a huge bucket, Mm. we take some fishing or some stringers for fishing, and we loop the stringers around cans of cat food. Okay. And then submerge... Open cans of cat food. Open, just open enough. Mm -hmm. Get that 
smell out. And then we submerge <laughs> the cans of catfish into the creek that mm. we're fishing from. And the crawdads, they come crawling. I'm making motions yeah, with she's, my fingers. She's making crawdad <laughs> motions of her fin- crawdads crawling crawdads across the crawling. table. They come out and they they are attracted to the smell of the cat food. And then we just scoop them up with a net and put them in the bucket. And <laughs> it's, I know it sounds bizarre. And I always wind up like to waist high in the water, yeah. even though I say I'm never, I'm not going in. I always wind up, <laughs> but it's, it is so much fun. Yeah. And it's a crack up to see these little guys, you know, crawling Marching out. Marching to so, their death. But unfortunately, we've had we've had so much smell, snow melt. Yeah, and the all the all the bodies of water here yeah. in the Eastern Sierra are yeah. so high. Yeah, so we were shut out of crawdadding, yeah. which was really sad. But we'll, we will try again in a few weeks when hopefully things have receded. Sure, better safe than sorry. But you were mentioning that crawdads can be found just about. everywhere in California now. They're kind of like an invasive species. Yes, they they definitely multiply quickly. And the the uh, Sacramento River Delta is mm-hmm. well, very overpopulated with, with crawdads and pretty much any, any body of water here where you can find rock formations, mm-hmm. you, you might find crawdads hiding underneath if you look for them. So about how many, if you're successful, about how many crawdads do you bring home? Well, if we've had a really good day, we'll bring home a good a couple pounds of wow. of them. Um, we'll fill up a half of a bucket, big bucket of crawdads. And, and so you just you, you boil them, you, we, you barbecue them. We break the heads off. We boil them with crab oil mm-hmm. and uh, lemons mm-hmm. in a big huge pot. Mm-hmm. And then how we like to ser- we like to throw in some potatoes and corn and artichokes, boil it all up, yep. cover the table with newspaper and throw it all out on there and just have, have at, at it. it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, guys. That's Stacy's adventure for the week. Uh, stay tuned for, I'm sure, more successful to, recounting. Yeah, to so see if we ever do catch any this season. <laughs> we'll keep you posted. Take a deep breath. We'll be right back. Let's go down to the crowded hole, honey. honey. Let's go down to the crowded hole, baby. Let's go down to the crowded hole. That's all the crowded we can hold. All right, welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, Stacy. Thank you. We're at our book section of the yes. ABCs, and we're going to switch the conversation from swamp bugs to serial killers. Yes. The, <laughs> so the uh, devil in the white the city. The devil in the white city. Stacy, you you were just mentioning how this book's been out a while and you just read it. So yeah. um and found out how great it is. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So it is actually it's almost like two books in one. Yeah. Eric Larson is the author and it parallels the story of Daniel Burnham building the White City which was the site of the 1893 World's Fair in in Chicago yeah. and a simultaneous story of one of the first known serial killers to exist I suppose H H Holmes was his name mm-hmm. and while the White City while the um, the World's Fair was being built and when it was actually uh, being implemented or when it was running, mm-hmm. this man, 
Holmes was murdering women left and right. And it was fascinating. And I, being from Chicago, I'm, I'm embarrassed that it took me this long to read it. So, um, Many of our listeners may be familiar with the book. For those of you who aren't, Eric Larson came out with this book probably over a decade ago now, um, and it really took off. It was known as one of the earlier um, examples of narrative nonfiction, the kind of rebirth of of nonfiction that is written in a very compelling way, really builds out the characters the way you would in the novel, and really just accelerates the reading from the beginning all the way to the very end where it's almost a page turner, right? It, it, it totally was. And um, it, it's hard to imagine a story of how a World's Fair came to be built right. being a page turner, but it was, it was fascinating. Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right. It's the way he writes real people mm-hmm. as if they are fictional characters yeah. and it makes it really compelling to read their story. And I know for me, I, I enjoyed the, the part about the ser- the storyline of the serial killer when <laughs> I was like fascinated right. by that. But I, you know, I was also, there was so much fascinating information about the building of the world's fair sure. and, and, living in Chicago and even in the United States at that time. Yeah. Um, and it, what it took to build an entire campus of World's Fair in a few years. Absolutely. Yeah. And now this included the first, um, nobody had ever seen a Ferris wheel before. Right. So this, that was a, that the Ferris wheel almost was a character itself. Certainly in, in was. In the book. And um, yeah, it was just, Fascinating. I know that. Um, so the way he structures it is every he alternates chapters between the right. the building of the World's Fair and the serial killer narrative. And I, you know, we were discussing this before the podcast. I was attracted to the book from the history of the World's Fair mm-hmm. perspective. I don't read a whole lot of true crime. I'm not that interested in right. serial killers, but I was sucked into that parallel story and and how they intersected throughout the development of the World's Fair. And they he did it he, the way he wrote it was so seamless. Like you didn't even you didn't even seem like you were shifting from one story to another. There yeah. was it was so well crafted. And then yeah. of course at the very end he in in the epilogue section he brings everything together sure, sure. and um it was really just a <laughs> it was a good read i learned so i lo- but it was a good read that i learned so much from. it's full of tidbits right i mean yeah. i remember one little tidbit is that this is one of the first um scale uses of electric light and people mm-hmm. traveled hundreds yep. of miles to the world's fair to see electric light yep. for the first time because you're out there in Chicago which is a, a skip away from the prairie right right so I thought that was that was fascinating well, and the way they were so competitive so I mean competition was a theme throughout this whole book um, you know first they're competing for Chicago the right. second city right you know how that phrase comes up you know to to be the host of the world's fair yeah. oh no you can never compete against paris sure. who had hosted the previous one and then it was the chicago architects versus the new york architects <laughs> and um you know the new york architects didn't want anything to do with them and it right. was just um there's a lot there there was there was so much there and 
Um, so for any listeners who might live back in Chicago or, or mm-hmm. who haven't, haven't had an opportunity to read the book. Yeah. So the, the white city was built in an area of Chicago called Jackson Park, mm-hmm. which right now is where the Museum of Science and Industry right. and the University of Chicago exist in that right. area. So, you know, having just been back a few months ago and having gone to the Museum of Science and Industry, I was picturing, you know, I had a fresh image of what it looks like now. Sure. And trying to picture it then was... He really does Amazing. a masterful job of transporting you into the 1890s Chicago, what it looked like, yes. who was there, what it smelled like, and really what the pressure was to put on a quality World's Fair. And I think that's what I love so much about reading, yeah. is being transported when an author does it well. Yeah, he you know, does into it very well. another time. And, yeah. And yeah, it was Eric great. Larson is a master of it. So he's written a number of narrative nonfiction books, and many of them, a few of them, at least um, use this device of alternating chapters to kind of build momentum and shape characters and really build a plot out of history. And so two of the other ones that our listeners may be um, familiar with are Thunderstruck, which is about the development of wireless and Marconi and um, being able to send a telegram from you know Europe to North America for the first time at the beginning of the 20th century. And again, another murderer trying to escape murder and how these two parallel narratives end up intersecting in a very dramatic way at the end. And then as well, he wrote a very compelling book called Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania, which again, is just something that you know the ending already. That's what narrative nonfiction is about. You can read about a newspaper accounts or a gazillion other books, but Larson treats it as um, something much more fast-paced and really draws you into specific individuals who are involved and you really grow to care about them in a new way. Well, I can't wait to I can't wait to read either one of them, but yeah. um, this is a new genre for me, and I really yeah. I really enjoyed it a lot. It's a genre that started. Um, one of the keystone titles is "In Cold Blood," of course, by Truman Capote, which kind of started true crime. Mm-hmm. nonfiction in itself, which is, of course, a very compelling read. But then there are others. It really took off in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. There was a book called Cod by Mark Kurlansky, which is about the fish, but it's about world history through the lens of cod of fish? and the cod industry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the, the initial reaction. But the book actually sucks you in through this framework to kind of learn about new stuff. And others picked up on it. Um, you know, other books that many people will have have heard about or have even been made into movies. So Margot Shetterly's Hidden Figures, the African-American um, females mm-hmm. who worked at NASA and helped right. get us into space. Daniel Brown's The Boys in the Boat about the Olympic rowing team in 1936. One of my favorites, Matthew Goodman's 80 Days, which is about a competing around the world race by Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Beisland in the late 1800s, which getting around the world back then was really an adventure. Right. And then, you know, Nellie Bly's race inspired around the world in 80 days. They tried oh. to beat this record, and it is a fascinating, fascinating book. Of course, Into Thin Air, we've talked about right. John Krakauer. Yep. And then one more recent one, which I know many people are reading because they're telling me about it, Susan Orlean's The Library Book, which is about the fire in the Los Angeles Public Library Mm -hmm. in the 1980s, and just the history of Los Angeles and that library through the framework of a very dramatic event. 
So it just shows you how much is out there you can learn from reading in a a fun way. In a way that satisfies you if you're someone who reads fiction and novels or thrillers or suspense books. There's there's crossover. Put you into a whole new category of of books to read. So, um, yeah, I encourage our listeners, if you're at all interested in narrative nonfiction, go to your bookstore or your library. We have tons of them. We can connect you with really good reads to read next. And if you have read The Devil in the White City, uh, hit us up on our our webpage, Oxygen Starved Podcast, and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. You are dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversation from 11,000 feet. Originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California, you can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Okay, welcome back. We're so happy today to have the Honorable Tim Alpers joining us for the C part of our conversation, our conversation. And Tim is a longtime Mono County resident, a former board of supervisor, former Division I basketball coach, breeder of the famed Alpers trout. Tim, what haven't you done? <laughs> Well, uh, I've had a great, blessed, full life, and um, there's a lot of things that I haven't done, and uh, now in retirement, I am embarking on some of those, uh, (laughs) such as I can, but um, my heart and my love will always be uh, in Mono County and the Eastern Sierra, and uh, what a wonderful place it is. So, Tim, you grew up here. Can you tell us what that was like? Well, it was, uh, you're correct, as my father grew up uh, here, and uh, my grandfather basically uh, grew up in the Eastern Sierra also, having come over as an immigrant uh, from Northern Germany in the late 1880s. Uh, I was very blessed to be part of a family ranching operation that uh, went for three generations, And I grew up mostly on the Alpers Owens River Ranch, which is on the headwaters of the Owens River, about 12 miles from Mammoth Lakes, halfway between Mammoth and June Lake. And it was quite an experience growing up uh, in the 50s and 60s on that property off the grid for half the year. And then uh, moving back to the city in the wintertime, we were snowed out. Uh, to continue my schooling, my sister and I, uh, and so we kind of had a we kind of had a dual life. We had uh, a part of it in Southern California, in, in Los Angeles, and then when the snows would melt and fishing season would be approaching, we'd move back up to the Upper Owens River, Mammoth June area, to get the resort open, and I would attend uh, Mammoth Elementary. So uh, wow. it was. Uh, it was a very diverse, very exciting life, and uh, uh, it taught me a lot of values of uh, how to survive being quote, the quote-unquote new kid all the time, uh, <laughs> and having to readjust constantly from mountain life to city life. And so back then, about how many people lived here in Mono County full-time? Well, what's really interesting, I was uh, born in 1948 and um, came up through the Mammoth uh, school system 
uh, in the early 50s. And what's really interesting is there was more people living in Bodie uh, in the 1870s and 1880s uh, than there were in Mono County in the 1950s. Wow. Uh, these, were the, these were the days before the Mammoth Mountain Ski Area were de- was developed. Right. And it was a, basically a small recreation-oriented county with about 10,000 residents from one end of the county to the other. Uh, oh. Mono County has about 3,300 square miles, very rural to say the least. <laughs> and I will say this, back in those days, uh, Mammoth uh, was the largest community uh, along with June Lake. And the rest of the county was very spread out, connected by dirt roads for the most part. And uh, we were in the midst of trying to, quote, unquote, tame the West back in those days. So uh, it was uh, it was very sparsely uh, populated. But what a grand, grand backdrop uh, the Sierras were, as they are to still are today. So what was your, did you have jobs on your ranch in the summer? Did, were you working on it or were you just enjoying running around? I can imagine how much fun that must have been as a kid. Well, it was kind of a combination of both. I will say this. One of the greatest gifts my parents ever gave me was they taught me how to work. And not that they were taskmasters uh, in some kind of ordinary life. My sister and I, we basically had to work to survive out there. You got to, you know, the context of what was going on in the Eastern Sierra uh, during that period is very important to under, understand and how Mammoth came about. We had a Great Depression in, 19, in the 30s when my parents got married uh, and they lived out on the uh, Alpers Ranch at that time. My father worked for Los Angeles Department of Water and Power on the Mono mm-hmm. Craters Tunnel project that he, in the wintertime, skied back and forth to, and in the summertime, rode his horse back and forth to work. Wow! And it was it was a survival oriented time. Uh, we went into World War II, and there was uh, fuel rationing, so the tourism basically to the Eastern Sierra dropped off to next to nothing during the war years, World War II. Right. Mm-hmm. And then post-World War II, things started booming, especially in Southern California. And there was uh, disposable income. There was growth. There was, we were the only nation in the world that hadn't been bombed out yeah. uh, mm-hmm. after World War II. And Southern California, uh, for a variety of reasons, was very attractive. And Recreation in the Eastern Sierra started to take off, and we started getting better roads up here, and tourism started to grow. Uh, but when we first acquired the ranch, it was very difficult. My my father was raised up uh, on family ranches. He lived through the Depression. He served in World War II. When he came home, his father had passed away, and so immediately. He had to to keep that ranch. He had to buy out his brothers and sisters, and he was successful in that. But the bottom line is we had a beautiful piece of land um, that my grandfather had acquired, but we didn't have uh, hardly any income. And so we all worked chores. We all worked to keep the resort cabins uh, going that we had open for six months out of the year. Hmm. Uh, The store was a long way away. Gas was expensive. My dad killed game. We lived off game 
deer and ducks and geese and rabbit and anything my father could shoot, basically, in the early spring and the late fall uh, to mix once in a while with some store-bought food for all of us to survive out there. And uh, it was just off the grid. It was tough living. There weren't four-wheel drives. There was no electricity out there. The roads were barely paved. Uh, the stores in Mammoth and June Lake barely carried anything. Uh, it, w- it was a whole different life. It was, uh, uh, once again, conquering the West in comparison to what we have today. Uh, there was no comparison. But things started changing fast. When uh, Mammoth Mountain Ski Area uh, opened up in 1955, it just opened up a whole new world in Mammoth of housing values and retail outlets. Uh, and schools, Mammoth Elementary School, uh, you know, really started to grow, and a whole lot of things happened. But those early years living out on the ranch, uh, you know, when I would get home from Mammoth Elementary School, by the time the bus would drop me off uh, up by Crestview and my folks would uh, pick me up and get me in, uh, there were still chores to do, and the sun would be going down right after 4 o'clock. And we still yeah. had to split wood and because the cabins were heated. People cooked on wood stoves in the rental cabins. My mom cooked on a wood stove. And my sister and I, we had, we had had when we got home, we had chores to do. And it would be after dark when we would knock off and finally come in for dinner. And my mom would supervise uh, us doing our homework. And uh, it, it was a whole different uh, you know way of life, our communication. Uh, were old uh, transistor radios, uh, the earliest ones that came out, right. and uh, radios that were driven by electricity. And we we could, you know, pick up KMJ Fresno maybe and get some outside news. And that that was about it in those times. So how did it? How did you go from doing all of that to becoming a Division One basketball coach and an author? <laughs> Uh, there, that's a well, fan there. I I will tell you that that upbringing I had that I just described briefly uh, laid the foundation, uh, the con- self confidence, the self reliance, the the ability to be understand teamwork uh, with my fa- my parents and my family, my teachers, my classmates at Mammoth Elementary. Uh, my ability to, to, to how to work within a team effort and how to take care of myself as best I could individually, the self-reliance came out of, out of those, those, those years. And that was the springboard for me to have the self-confidence to take on, uh, higher challenges. Now in the mid fifties, I think because my sister and I were very tired of being called the new kids by transferring back and forth from Los Angeles schools to the Mammoth schools. My parents bought a winter home in Bishop. And I, from the uh, mid-50s on, uh, my sister and I attended uh, the school system uh, in, in, in Bishop. And Bishop being an old, traditional, quote-unquote, American graffiti type of small town, uh, football, basketball, baseball studies, apple pie motherhood was the <laughs> the way of life there. And I got involved in the team sports. I would, had been blessed with some athletic ability, even though I had some major health challenges uh, right after birth, I was able to come out of all that. And I fell in love with the sport of basketball. And um, 
I was very blessed to come through a system that was, uh, I was coached by a gentleman by the name of Gus Klikas, who was in the California Basketball uh, Coaching Hall of Fame. Wow. He built a program down in Bishop that was very similar to the movie Hoosiers, almost exactly. People would travel, people would get in line at the Bishop gym at three in the afternoon so they could get in to see us play when I was a junior and a senior. I was very blessed to have a fantastic group of uh, youngsters that I grew up with down there. And uh, we proceeded to move forward. And in my junior and senior year, senior year, we never lost a a home game and uh, advanced to the CIF system. And I threw the Alpers Owens River Ranch fishing resort back in those times. We had a, a, a people from Southern California from every different industry, the entertainment industry, the athletics, the in uh, business. And one of the guests we had at the Alpers Ranch was a gentleman by the name of Fred Schaus, who was the head coach, first head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. He was a wow. fisherman and he was a fisherman and my dad was a fantastic uh, fly fisherman. And uh, I was a little kid then, a 15 year old kid. And having Coach Schaus come to the ranch was just mind boggling for me because I was just developing an interest in basketball. And I'll never forget Fred, he took me to the side. My dad told him that uh, I was interested in basketball. And so he watched me go through a little routine with a jump rope and a ball handling. And we had an old rim on a work shed out there at the ranch. And I shot a few shots. And he invited me to come down to his uh, L.A. Laker basketball camp. And I'll never forget, one day on the ranch, he put his arm around me. He looked down at me. Fred was a tall man. He was about 6'7". And he that played professional basketball in his days. And he looked down at me and he said, you know, Tim, you have potential in this sport. And some way, someday, if you stick with this, you're going to be successful in the basketball industry one way or the other. I really believe that. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget those words. And uh, so I went to college at the university, university of Nevada up here in Reno and the coaches uh, encouraged me to come out for, the freshman basketball team, which I made that team. And we went off and had a fantastic uh, freshman team back then. Freshmen were not eligible for varsity back in those days, the NCAA. And although I suffered a serious knee injury in my sophomore year, I never lost my love for the sport or the industry of uh, college and professional basketball. So besides getting my education in uh, uh, fish hatchery, management and fisheries biology and natural resources i stayed in the summertime working at basketball clinics i got invited to work for the uh, lakers summer camp for the uh, san francisco warriors summer camp befriended a number of players in that era that uh, were with those teams uh and next thing i knew um, i ended up being asked to be a graduate assistant basketball coach at the university of tulsa when i was 23 years old and then uh, came back to uh, coach at Bishop High School, and I was the first head basketball coach at Mammoth High School. Wow. The first year the school opened in 1974. And then before I could even finish that school year, I got asked to be on the staff full-time at the University of Tulsa in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the Missouri Valley Conference. And at wow. that time, the Missouri Valley was a Power Five conference. We played all the national powers from UCLA with Coach Wooden to UNLV with Jerry Tarkanian 
to Arkansas with Eddie Sutton, to uh, all, all the biggest names in the country. And uh, uh, at that time, I was the youngest full-time assistant coach in the United States. And uh, so it's, it was just being in, having the right work ethic, the right attitude, being in the right place at the right time, uh, gambling on myself for the future and uh, not being denied and just push, push, push. Right. Right. And I kind of realized that when my star was rising, you just it doesn't happen very often in life to anybody. You just hang on as tight as you can, like hanging <laughs> on to a bucking bronco. You know, you just yeah. hang on yeah. as yeah. best you can and see if you can ride it to the to the buzzer. You know. Well, that's an that's an amazing story. It is. You know, one comment you made in there, Tim, was you know having a mentor or someone that you look up to and admire so much, recognizing the potential in you as a young person. That's an extraordinary moment, and I hope that everyone in their life has moments like that, and that it helps propel them forward the way you just described. Well, I fully agree with that, and I've had fantastic mentors through all all of my careers. Uh, and, uh, they've been extremely, extremely inspirational and helpful. And now at this stage of my life, I try to do the same thing, uh, for other youngsters myself. Well, I think we'd like you to come back and coach Mammoth, the Mammoth High School <laughs> basketball team again. <laughs> well, I, I will say this. One of the greatest things I'm so proud of and so part of being a team was getting with the Mammoth High School boosters and raising the funds and. Yes. bringing awareness and getting that brand new basketball floor in the men's gym. That was very thrilling for me personally. And I was so happy for the kids to well, have finally have a beautiful, beautiful floor in there. And it's, it's, it is a beautiful floor. And I know my daughter is a cheerleader, so she gets to actively use it <laughs> on a daily basis. So we're very, very grateful for all your work and help getting that accomplished. Tim, we always ask our guests about what they're reading now. So can you tell us what you're reading? <laughs> well, um, I saw that on your notes and I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm kind of a history nut, always have been. That's great. You know, I've always, uh, and I think I became, I was always interested in it. Uh, but when I got elected to the Board of Supervisors in 1983, and I was a young 32-year-old, 33-year-old buck when that happened. And uh, I really didn't know what I was doing. I kind of got drafted. Next thing, it's like, uh, what's that movie, that, The Candidate? Yesterday, I couldn't spell it, but today I are one. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> and after sitting up um, at the board for about two or three months in late 83, early 84, and I started seeing how some of these things came down and how government worked and political subdivisions and how to deal with the state and how the feds fit in and living on uh, how much federal land, you know, I just saw how everything was so disjointed and everybody had their own silo. So I started studying Greek and Roman history on where our culture and where our laws came from and policymaking. And then sure. what wow. came over on the Mayflower and how all this, how did all this stuff work? And so I started putting a lot of stock in, uh, in, in, in history. So my reading has always gone that direction. I've never been a big fiction guy. I always figured that the truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, currently, uh, in the last few years, um, I have been reading a lot about the history of the American West 
and having lived through it myself, I'm not really realizing it, but I've been studying about uh, how the Great Basin and California got its roots, and it's really, the history is so recent, you know, just in the last 150, 160 years, I mean, and that's just nothing compared to European history, but to answer your question, I'm currently reading an older book from a long time ago that I've just never got around to reading, and it's by uh, the best-selling famous author Irving Stone. It's called Men to Match My Mountains, and it's a monumental saga of winning the Americas, uh, the Far West, and all the names that we associate with either the names of cities or Gold Rush or whatever, the Sutters, the Bidwells, yeah, uh, all these great, all these great names uh, from the Baleo, all the great names from. Uh, the early uh, settling of of uh, California. I'm reading about as I work my way uh, through this book. It's just fascinating, and I I'm starting to do more reading uh, of a history of the American West and our what was happening in our nation during those times because I'm endeavoring on another project myself. I'm I'm starting on a history of the Alpers Ranch, which is more go. than just uh, more than just my family. It's how that piece of property. Uh, fit into commerce and right. you know back in the early uh, pioneer days the 1830s 1840s up through there uh, there really wasn't anything in Mammoth or June Lake there was just too much snow on that edge of the county mm-hmm. so all the commerce coming up out of the Owens Valley onto the mining uh, towns of Bodie and Aurora was on the eastern edge of southern Mono County up the Owens right. River up over uh, uh, Indiana Summit over to Mono Mills and then around on the little narrow gauge train to Bodie and Aurora. All of our commerce and all of our wealth uh, developed on that edge. And my grandfather being an extremely astute uh, man and driven a German immigrant, he, he, he bought certain properties uh, in this corridor. And um, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's uh, just a beautiful area extremely interesting and you know it's a story that uh i think at this stage of history only i can tell because there's very few people still alive that uh, know everything that uh and care about what happened along that edge of uh, uh mono county back in the day and it certainly will so add then to match my mountains is an inspiration to me awesome and it certainly the book you're working on tim will certainly add to the fabric of california history you reminded me um, some of my favorite history of California written by Kevin Starr a number of years ago, who is the former state librarian, actually, has written really yes. history of, of the state. And you're right. It is just so intricate and so many interweaving stories and so much still left to tell. So thank you for, for recommending that book. And, and we hope when you finish your next book, you'll come back and talk with us about <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a daunting task. It's just so huge. It's such a huge undertaking. You know, you have this, you have this, all the things that I will say, let me just say this in preface here, Mono County up until recent decades, very recent decades, Mono County was a very lawless place. <laughs> uh, we had, you know, uh, murder, pr- prostitution, thievery, uh, waters theft, property theft, all against this incredible backdrop of timber, mining, 
uh, just this incredible, it's almost like uh, uh, James Michener's book Centennial. It's just such a this mm-hmm. huge backdrop and all the human failings uh, that go with it. And a lot of it swirled around um, uh, my family ranch over the past uh, 140 years. <laughs> yeah. well, so, uh, it, and there, there's still, you know, you look at um, uh, Dave McCoy's story of how he was able to buck up against the incredible backdrop of the Eastern Sierra and be uh, overcome obstacles and be successful. It's just uh, very colorful uh, and a story worth telling because the American West, especially in California, has such a fascination all over the world, especially in Europe. And I don't know whether you realize it or not, but the number one destination uh, vacation tour for the nation of Germany is the California Eastern Sierra. They fly into San Francisco and they take the bus through Yosemite, come down the east side through Mammoth, and they either go through Death Valley to Vegas or they go down to L.A. to see Hollywood, then they fly fly back out. And uh, also, the area on Earth that is studied the most geologically is the Eastern Sierra region of California because you have tectonic uplifting, glaciation, overlaid with volcanism all within the last five to 10,000 years. All a lot of these things happening. It's amazing. And it's uh, so it's a very unique area and there's, and then you have the human element in there and uh, it's a, uh, it's quite a story. <laughs> it is. Well, Tim, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Tim. We really appreciate it. We hope you will come back and talk with us some more another time. Well, we've just started to scratch the surface, and it would be my it would be my pleasure. And Thank tell you. your daughter to cheer hard on that beautiful new floor. I'm sure she'll be able to bound an extra couple of inches in the air off that springy new maple <laughs> floor. Yes, sir. I will. I will do so. Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of Oxygen Starved Adventure Books and Conversation at 11,000 Feet. We certainly enjoyed listening to Tim's perspective of Mono County and the Eastern Sierra. He certainly hits on all the points why we find it so special. We encourage you to listen to us. Um, every two weeks, we're putting out an episode. You can find us at our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. Our Instagram, Stacy, what's our Instagram handle again? Oh, too starved. So, yeah, find us on Apple Podcasts, find us on SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, wherever you find your podcasts. Download us, subscribe to us, and rate us. We love to hear your comments and see what you think of our podcast. So, yeah, tell your friends, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to Oxygen Starved. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.